So that's Mark 10, verses 1 to 12, page 845. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan, and crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house of the, and in the, house of the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, you've given us challenging words this morning. And so we each need uh, your presence to be with us. Lord, I pray that you would please help me to teach this passage clearly and faithfully in a way that you would be pleased with, in a way that would serve everyone listening. And Lord, we also need you for our own hearts and our minds, our lives. Lord, there's pain that is dug up from words like these. Uh, some of us have had horrible things done to us. Some of us have done horrible things. We all come here, Lord, needing you and your grace. And so we pray that we would uh, rest in the grace and truth of Jesus Christ, who came for us, who lived for us, who died for us, who rose for us, who reigns for us. It's in his name we pray, amen. So we are studying right through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, one reason we study right through books is, is we don't want to hide anything. We don't want to shy away from things that seem difficult. I don't just want to pick what, what my favorite part is and, and share that with you. We want to be honest with the Bible and see what it says. And so this is the next text up. Uh, we remember Mark was an associate of the Apostle Peter, He's an, and Peter was an eyewitness of the life of Jesus. So this gospel, this book we're looking at even today, this is written 30 or 40 years after the life of Jesus. And we've seen week after week, Mark is dealing with three all-important questions. This is where we want to start. Who is Jesus? We each want to take that really seriously. Who is this man? Number two, what did he come to do? It's immensely important. And then given those first two Things. Who is he? What did he come to do? Well, given those first two things, how should I respond to him? How should I live given who he is and what he came to do? So just a little, a little uh, reminder, chapters 1 to 8 focused primarily on who Jesus is. Mark gave us evidence after evidence, displaying he's the Christ, the Son of God. So Jesus is eternally God. 
in, in every way equal with the Father. And also, he has taken on human flesh to come walk our shoes in order to save his people and one day renew the world. That's who Jesus is. If chapters 1 to 8 focus on who Jesus is, towards the end of chapter 8, there's this intensifying focus on what Jesus came to do. And we've seen it week after week. To the shock of his disciples, he told them, I came to die on a cross. I came to die on a cross. And so we're starting to walk this road with him, this road to Jerusalem, where he's walking face on towards the cross. And along the way, he's teaching his disciples. Because as Jesus goes to the cross, that's why he came, he also calls those who belong to him to take up their own cross. Remember Mark 8, 34. Calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, what do you have to do? Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's not a literal cross necessarily. Mostly it's a willingness to die to your own independence and autonomy. Uh, you know, in our sin, I want to be—I want to be independent from God. I don't want to be under what He says. I want to make my own way. I want to rule my own life. I want to be my own king. To take up my cross is to die to that, and now give my allegiance to Jesus. I'm going to trust Him with my with my life, my identity, my future. He's the one who saves me, and I belong to Him. That's what it means. To be a Christian, really, it's a decisive picture, um, and it's worth it, right? Those who belong to Christ, it's worth it, because we die to live. It's worth it to have him and live for him. Well, that brings us to chapter 10, and so um, I don't know if this is going to make you want to come back or not, but in, in chapter 10, Jesus is calling his people to take up their cross and follow him when it comes to some of the most personal and fundamental areas of their lives, Follow me in marriage, follow me when it comes to children, and follow me when it comes to money. So we wonder, how serious are we about this Jesus character? How much do I really want to follow him? So this morning we're looking at marriage according to Jesus. It's probably obvious to you. This is one of the most controversial issues of our time. Marriage, gender, divorce, sexuality. Obviously, this text will bring up a ton of questions I can't possibly hope to deal with this morning. If you, would, if you want to talk about any of this, I would love to talk with you. So let me know. But here's, here's really the biggest question for the day. Who are you going to trust on these things? Who are you going to trust when it comes to marriage, gender, divorce, sexuality? Who says? Do you think we can trust Jesus? Do you think as the son of God, he's wise enough to know what's best on these things? Do you think as the one who came to die for us, he's loving enough for us to trust him even when it's hard? So we're gonna look at marriage according to Jesus and I think there's four main points. That's what we're going to walk through today. We're going to see the test, the authority, the design, and then the difficulty 
We get to end with difficulty. The test, the authority, the design, the difficulty. Here we go. First, the test. So if you're following along in your Bibles, Mark 10, 1 to 2. Jesus is on the way into Jerusalem in the, in the journey in this gospel. He's moving closer to Jerusalem, and that brings him into the territory of his enemies. It's important context for this passage. He's in the territory of his enemies. Number one, Herod Antipas is king in this region. Do you remember what he did to John the Baptist? He had him killed. That's the region we're in. Not only that, the Pharisees are here as well. Who are they? Uh, we can say influential group of religious leaders who hate Jesus and want him destroyed. So he's coming into the territory of enemies. And then right here at the beginning of this passage, Jesus is teaching the crowds and the Pharisees come to test him. That's an important idea for the passage. They come to test him. And they want to test him on the nature of divorce. So what's going on? Well, first we want to understand the Pharisees are not coming asking honest, genuine questions. So they're not saying... Boy, marriage and divorce, those are hard issues. Jesus might be the Christ. Let's go see what he has to say. That's, that's not what they're doing. They already know what they think about these things. They don't care what Jesus thinks about these things. They want him exposed. They want him discarded. They want him ruined. And they're going to do it, that's their plan, with this issue. So we have to ask as readers of the Bible... We see them testing him on the issue of divorce. We have to ask, why would this work for them? Out of all the strategies they could choose to mess with Jesus and his ministry, why this one? And so I think there's two strategies we can see in what the Pharisees are trying to do. Number, number one, I think they're hoping Jesus will be discredited by looking extreme in comparison to popular opinion. I mean, even in our day, what's one of the worst things you can say about someone? They're extreme. The Pharisees, I think, are hoping Jesus will look extreme. Here's why I say that. The crowd leans toward this idea of men having the power to divorce their wives for nearly any reason. That's the way the crowd leans. So just to add some clarity, this is what Matthew says about the same moment. Look at Matthew 19.3. Mark assumes this. Matthew makes it more clear. Matthew 19, 3. The Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife? And then what's the, what's the next three words? For any cause. Any cause. So Jewish society took it for granted there was such a thing as divorce. But, but the argument is, what are the grounds? Two rabbinical schools of thought. There, there was a school of Shammai, conservative. A man cannot divorce his wife unless he's found um, legitimate sexual misconduct. The school of Hillel was more liberal and more popular. And this is what they said. A man can divorce his wife for burning dinner. <laughs> or if he finds another lady who is more attractive. So at this time, divorce seems to have been generally male-dominated and served selfish male interests. Uh, one historian says, divorce was relatively easy in those days, and the Pharisees and rabbis intended to keep it so. 
And so they bring this question to Jesus. I think they're assuming he will go one way, and they want to discredit him in the sense that he will look extreme when it comes to popular opinion. He's going to call people to things they don't want to be called to. But there's a second and more serious aspect to their strategy, and that is the political danger. It's a le- Think about this. They're in the territory of Herod Antipas. Do you remember what he did? He fell in love with his brother's wife. They basically had an affair, divorced their own spouses, married one another. John the Baptist called him out for this. What did Herod do to John the Baptist? He cut his head off. He literally cut his head off. Jesus is right here in Herod's neighborhood. Do you see how the question of divorce could get Jesus in trouble? But just thinking of the idea of a test, right? This test for Jesus. It it might be helpful for us in our cultural moment to realize that it's nothing new for the issues of marriage, gender, divorce, sexuality to be polarizing or even politically dangerous issues. That's not new. And here Jesus is put to the test on what he believes about marriage. And, and we just think about ourselves being put to the test. We, we are going to be put to the test on this. Imagine, right? The cameras are on. The mic is hot. Your boss is listening. The government is listening. Your professor is listening. Your family, your friends are listening. What do you believe about marriage, gender, divorce, sexuality? Why do you believe it? could get you in trouble. In some, some places, you may look extreme. Or here's, here's an even greater test for those of us who claim to belong to Jesus. Not only will we say what he says, will we live according to what he says, even when it has a cost? Will we take up our cross? And we're just reminded that, that Jesus, he's not a, 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 for, a get out of hell free card. He's not only forgiveness. He is forgiveness. Praise God. I love being forgiven so much. He is forgiveness. But when we come to Christ, it's not just like, oh, I, I believe in Jesus and now I'm forgiven and, and I go my merry way. No, you realize he wants all of you all the time. And he wants all of you in regard to these aspects of life as well. And when we say, Jesus, this or that, it's too much to ask, right? Maybe some of us aren't challenged by this text. Maybe we'll be challenged by the the text that talks about money. But anytime we think, Jesus, it's too much to ask, we remember he died for us. And his picture of the Christian life was not relax in your easy chair, It was take up your cross. There's going to be a cost. This is the test. This is one of the tests. And it helps me to know, I'm so thankful. Jesus knows this pressure. He knows the test. He passed the test. So the first point was the test. Now the authority. We want to look at how Jesus answers. 
And you, you see it in verse three. He answered them, what did Moses command you? So I love this. He shoots right past public opinion. He's not like, what did the polls say? What did the Newsweek article say or what have you? Shoots right past it. He doesn't go, well, was it Shammai or Hillel? What did the rabbis say? Zooms right past it. Doesn't even mention Herod. Where does he go? Straight line. He goes straight line to the Bible. Straight line to the scriptures. This is his authority. And by the way, a major reason I believe the Bible and it has my trust is because Jesus believed all of the Bible. And he predicted his death and resurrection and then he did it. He's the son of God and he says, you can believe this, every word will come true. So we believe it, it's trustworthy. He points us straight to scripture. Well, in, in response to what Jesus says, his question, what did Moses command you? The Pharisees go to Deuteronomy 24, verse four. They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Now, I will leave you to study that text on your own. I'm sure you'll have a great time with that this afternoon. But just to summarize it, according to the Mosaic law, remember this is a, a theocratic nation God has saved out of slavery, brought, brought into Israel. According to the Mosaic law, if you're going to get a divorce, you have to get a certificate. And, and just by the way, it's not the point of this passage, but Christians have always believed the state has a role, best case scenario, in ratifying marriage because it's such an important institution. So man has to get a certificate before he can send his wife away in divorce. And really the purpose of that is like a boundary marker. This far and no further. So uh, commentator James Edwards is helpful. Uh, I'll read to you what he says about this. Edwards says, the stipulations in Deuteronomy 24 discouraged hasty divorces by requiring a man to stipulate a reason for divorce in writing. And the certificate of divorce guaranteed the divorcee at least a modicum of dignity and the right to remarry another man if she chose. Key sentence, it safeguarded the rights of the woman. Because in a patriarchal culture, just sending a woman away, um, it's not like she's got all sorts of rights and liberties. Uh, there's danger of poverty, all, or all sorts of evils and difficulty. And so this, this law is a boundary. It's admitting divorce will happen, but it's a boundary trying to protect people. And that's why Jesus says in verse 5, and this is fascinating, Verse five, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. So why is this boundary in here? Because our hearts are hard. Why do we, why do we have divorce and need boundaries on what divorce is? Because our hearts are hard. What, what does that mean? What's it mean to have a hard heart? It means we don't like God. And it means we won't listen to him. We're gonna make it up ourselves. We don't like God, we won't listen to him. And notice what Jesus says about the Pharisees. They're all about religion, all about memorizing the Bible. They, they know this place. And what did, Jesus, what did Jesus just say to them? He said to them, your hearts are hard. Do you see what they're doing? 
The Pharisees are using what God meant as a boundary on the worst case scenario. They're using that as a loophole for remaking marriage as they prefer it. Edwards again, Edwards says, their attitude reminds us of a person who has just been granted a bank loan and then asks under what conditions he might be absolved from repaying it. They want to talk about divorce. Jesus wants to talk about marriage. So Jesus points to Scripture. The second thing he does, our authority, look at verse 5. He points them to God's design. Verse 5, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses wrote you this commandment, but from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Where does Jesus look? Where's, his author where's the authority? It's from the beginning of Genesis. It's from how God created and designed human beings. He looks to a moment that, that occurred before sin and rebellion and the fall and corruption. God's intent, that's where Jesus looks. This is the way God designed things to be. This is what's good, this is what honors God and is good for people. So we, just, we need to see right here, what's the authority Jesus points us to? God's design according to Scripture. That's our authority for these things. And so then we realize marriage, gender, sexuality, these are not simply cultural constructs. That's what we're told, right? Every time and place, they make it up as they go. No, no hard lines on reality or right or wrong. But as, as Christians, we cannot accept that. These, these are things God has designed these are gifts from God to be received according to the design of the one who made us. And in fact, to go against God's design is to display a hard, a hard heart towards God and a lack of love for one another. So we've seen the test. This is going to test us. Now we've seen the authority, God's design in Scripture. Third, the design itself. Details on its design. So starting at verse 6, we're going to see Jesus assert three main things about God's design for marriage. These are the words of Jesus Christ, marriage according to Jesus, right here. We'll start at verse 6. From the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. At the heart of God's design for marriage is, number one, what we would call gender complementarity. It's at the heart of God's design. And Jesus looks back to Genesis 1, 21. Let's see it again. We quote this verse a lot here when it comes to thinking about human rights or how we treat one another. Because this is the foundation of all foundations for believing that anybody would have value in and of themselves. Look what the word says. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There's two genders who together display the image of God. Equal in value, wonderfully different. 
And this same but different reality between male and female enables them to come together in unity for the glory of God. And we see that everywhere in all aspects of life, but of course, especially in marriage. And I think part of what Jesus is emphasizing in in this context, he is saying, look, it's not just the male who's made in the image of God. What else is Jesus saying? The female is made in the image of God, equal in value, in dignity, in worth. And so the subtext here for Jesus is, your wife is not a commodity you dispose of with a certificate. That's what he's saying. She's an equal partner in the image of God. But of course, this first pillar, right? Gender complementarity, one man, one woman. And it's not a social construct, friends. This is a theme throughout the entire scriptures. This gender complementarity in marriage points to the gospel itself, Paul says in Ephesians 5. Just remember, just a, a brief look at that, Ephesians 5.25. Husbands, love your wives. Why? How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is not the attitude of just grab a certificate, is it? I'm gonna give, give myself up for her. And the reason every husband is called to be just a glimmer of the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, and every wife is called to be a glimmer of just the, a devoted church loves Jesus loves and respects her husband, is, is it's a picture of the gospel itself that's, that saves us. It's an enormous issue, a beautiful, beautiful thing. In fact, heaven itself, and we looked at just a little bit of it as we began our worship, right? In Revelation, heaven itself is like a wedding feast where finally the bride, that's us, we're a part of this bride, Right? we come to to finally meet our faithful husband, Jesus Christ. So this is an enormous issue. It's beautiful. It's important. It's part of God's design, gender complementarity. Second aspect Jesus points out when it comes to God's design for marriage. I'll say it like this. The commitment of a lifelong priority. The commitment of a lifelong priority. And you see it in verse 7. Look what Jesus says. Again, he's quoting from Genesis Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and do what? Hold fast. To who? His wife. Leave your father and mother. Hold fast to your wife. This would have have felt radical in Jesus' day. The common view of marriage and divorce made men the lords of marriage and divorce. I I can go get a certificate. If I'm not happy with this lady anymore. And Jesus is saying, hey, fellas, and I, I know the Pharisees felt this. Jesus is saying, if God was truly your first priority like you say it is, your wife would be your second priority. That's what he's saying. If God was your first priority, your wife would be your second priority. Because in their culture, we don't feel it maybe as strongly in ours, but you're even to prioritize her above your parents. 
You get married, your, your parents are not your priority more. So for first century Jewish culture, that's a radical thing to say. It shouldn't be. It's biblical. But it's a radical thing to say. It's a, the, the first priority, a lifetime of making this person the priority. I leave past priorities and I cleave to this new priority. So if you are married, what's your first relational priority other than Jesus Christ himself? It's your spouse more than your kids. Yeah, in fact, that's the best thing for your kids. More than your parents? Yeah, more than your buddies? Yeah, more than, yes. It's a lifelong commitment or a commitment of lifelong priority. You know, I was asked this question when I got married, and I have asked some of you in this room this question. Do you remember what you promised? This is what I promised. Will you have this woman to be your wife to live together in the covenant of marriage? Will you love her, comfort her, honor and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? Before God, I said it. You know what I said? I will. God help me. Hopefully I'm keeping that in a decent way. But that's, that's part of God's design for marriage, according to Jesus, a commitment of a lifelong priority until death. So we've seen gender complementarity, commitment of a lifelong priority. Third, an exclusive unity. Exclusive unity, look at verse eight. They are no longer two, but one flesh. Again, Jesus is still quoting from Genesis, but, but we hear the words. They are no longer two, but one flesh. No longer two. So how many people are getting married here? Two. Three people? No. Twelve people? No. How many? Two. And what happens as they make this covenant with one another? They become one. They become one, one flesh, an exclusive unity. Is anybody else to be involved in this exclusive unity? No. It's two, becoming one. That's God's design. And they are uniquely unified. Genesis 2.25, it says, the man and his wife were both naked and not ashamed. Such a beautiful picture there. I can be seen for... How not impressive I am, the reality of who I am. And I don't have to be ashamed because this person embraces me and loves me anyway. And I am to do the same for her, not ashamed. And so you see this idea of unity, heart, mind, mission. That's the goal. Is it hard to do? Yes, it's hard to do. Is it seemingly impossible sometimes? <laughs> Yes, but that's the design we're looking towards is to be unified together. And that's what God does. Did you notice? What God has joined together. These are incredible words for Jesus, from Jesus. God is personally interested in every single marriage and his hand is on it. When the covenant is made, he put them together and made them one. Wow. 
course, we're also to be one in body. We see here how God's design for marriage includes God's design for sex. Sex is our bodies making that covenant that we made with our mouths and our minds and every other aspect of our lives. So we consummate the covenant as the body comes together and sex ratifies that covenant of exclusive, lifelong, complementarian unity. And amazingly, when those bodies come together, sometimes kids get made. Our culture tries to forget this, doesn't it? Tries to forget. But it's, uh, it's fascinating how Mark did it. He talks about marriage, and then he talks about children. <laughs> but this is, this is God's design according to Jesus. Complementarian, lifelong priority, Exclusive unity. Now, as soon as we see and say those three things, we have to take a deep breath. We have to groan. We have to, we have to realize that each of these aspects of God's design for marriage are constantly attacked throughout human history. Every single one of them. If you know your Bibles, you'll remember Genesis 4 and this uh, creepy character named Lamech. Anybody remember him? He attacked the design of exclusive unity in marriage and introduced polygamy. It's not God's design. It doesn't fit. Or in this text, in Mark, what are the Pharisees are attacking? What are the Pharisees attacking? They're attacking the aspect of a lifelong priority. Oh, we'll just get a certificate. For what? For any reason. Attacking it. And, of course, which aspects of God's design for marriage are attacked in our day? All of them. In every way. Gender is no longer important. The covenantal aspect is no longer important. Even just surfing the internet a little bit, I don't recommend this. Major publications saying, hey, wouldn't thruples be a great idea? I mean, if gender's not important, why is the number important? Or um, there's actually one of the New, New York Times about being monogamish. And that was the idea that some honest intentional infidelity might actually help your marriage. <laughs> and all God's people said, no. <laughs> I had to edit myself there. <laughs> no. But look, once... Look around. Once you start to corrode at one aspect of God's design for marriage, and different times and different cultures maybe pick one aspect to corrode, but once you corrode one, I, we just have to ask, why keep any of them? Who says? Who says? And so we realize it's not just true, it's also beautiful. This is God's design for marriage and human thriving. And I, I cut a lot of stuff here because there's just not time. But if you're a skeptic on this, I just want you to consider just one, put one little pebble in your shoe. Do you know one of the key factors for child poverty is the aspect of marriage? I won't say it's the only factor, but it is one of the key factors for whether or not children are raised in poverty or not. It's marriage. Marriage is God's design, and it is good for society. 
But we got to leave that there for now. Again, here's the big question. Who's the Lord of marriage? The Pharisees want to be lords of their marriages. Herod wants to be lord of his marriage. Our cultural moment demands to be lord of marriage. And Jesus says, I'm the Lord of marriage. And Christians will say, yes, you are. All right, now the difficulty. The difficulty, we're gonna look at 10 to 12 because it's difficult. Verse 10, in the house, the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So we wanna ask the honest and hard question, is Jesus invalidating all divorce and remarriage? At first glance, you might think that. But let's remember the context the disciples asked Jesus again about this matter. And what's the this matter? Well, it's pretty clear. I think the Pharisees are talking about a man getting a divorce for any reason. That's what he's talking about. For any reason. Again, Matthew 19, verse 9. Matthew's account of the same moment. It really adds some important clarity. Look at Matthew 19, 9. This is what Jesus said. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality and marries another, commits adultery. So there you see an exception already. There, there are biblical grounds for divorce in some cases. There are. Taking all the Bible into, the, into account, I think you could recognize really two or three categories depending on how you phrase it. But there's, the Bible gives grounds for divorce when there is sexual misconduct and Abandonment slash abuse. Continued serious abuse is basically abandonment. And so we acknowledge there are biblical grounds for divorce, and the Bible gives these grounds to protect the victim. When a covenant is broken, right, through sexual misconduct or continued abuse or abandonment, Biblical grounds for divorce protect the victim. Now, we, we, now we want to be careful, right? These should be serious and sober things. It's not like he came home late for work. That's abandonment. We sound like the Pharisees, right? No, 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 no. But when this has been practiced, there is freedom to get a divorce and then freedom to remarry. Do you have to get a divorce? Of course not, never. But you can if necessary. That takes a lot of wisdom. I'm going to leave that there. So what about these words of Jesus? Well, he's dealing with a context where men are getting divorces over burnt dinner. And if you can imagine what that looks like, you're getting rid of this wife for, for no good reason, grabbing another wife for no good reason, and it's almost like swingers with a religious guise. It's adultery in religious clothing. That's why Jesus is speaking so strongly about this. The religious system of the day is totally corrupting God's design. And that's what he's confronting. So there is biblical grounds for divorce. And of course, there are, then there are biblical grounds for remarriage. That's one difficult question. I know there are many others but just to leave it there. Here's another difficult question. What if I mess this up? 
What if I mess this up? I just want to say there's, there's a, no room for self-righteousness in this room. Can I get an amen? You may not have messed this up, but I'm going to bet you messed something up. And even if I don't know you, I know what the Bible says about you. And I know myself. We can all relate to making bad decisions that seriously influence our lives. What if I mess this up? And so now we want to remember the good news. Who did Jesus come to save? The, the good people? He wouldn't have needed to come because there aren't any of those. Who did he come to save? Sinners. Sinners. And there isn't one sin that can keep us from him and his forgiveness if we'll repent and trust ourselves to him. Not a single one. And like with any sin, rebelling against God's design in these regards, everything we've looked at today, they can all be forgiven at the cross. I'm reminded of that story of Jesus in John 8. It was one of the worst moments of the Pharisees. Are you familiar with that story? They somehow catch a woman in adultery, which that whole idea is creepy to me. I don't know how they pulled that off. But they drag her out in public. Just, just awful. And they, and they put her there in front of these gawking, self-righteous men, again, in order to discredit Jesus. I want you to see what he does. John 8, 7, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone. And once more, he bent down and wrote on the ground. We'd love to know what that is. Verse 9, but when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. <laughs> And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. Look what he says next, verse 10. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, Lord. Listen to the mercy of Christ. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. I think that's the right tone as we conclude thinking about this text. We, we come to Jesus in some way. What if I mess this up? We come to him in some way guilty. If we put our faith in him, this is what he says to you. Neither do I condemn you. Do you hear that? Forgiven. And then what does he say? From now on, go and sin no more. Start right here. Start today. Trust Jesus and live for him today. Because he's the great husband who gave himself up for us, his bride. Look at his difficulty. He went to the cross to pay for the sins of his people. And I do feel compelled to say it here in the spirit of what we saw from that passage in John 8. I just want everybody to know it's not a sin to be sinned against. It's not a sin to be sinned against. If you were abused and mistreated in these ways. God has not forgotten you. He has compassion for you. Divorce does not make somebody a secondhand Christian. Jesus knows what it's like to be mistreated, to be abandoned by those he loves, and he will bring justice in his time. 
So one last question and we'll finish. What do I do now? What do I do now? Take up your cross and follow Jesus. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. If you are married or remarried, be faithfully married for the glory of God. Take up your cross and follow Jesus. If you are single, be faithfully single for the glory of God. He has something beautiful for your life. You're not secondhand. You're not missing out. Honor God's design. If you need to reconcile with someone or ask forgiveness, do it for the glory of God. Ask the Holy Spirit if that's real for you. And just to finish, as this cultural moment tests us on these things, and it will, let's take up our cross and follow Jesus in word and in deed. Because he's worthy of it, isn't he? He's worthy of it. Let's pray. Lord, we, we all get confronted as we hear your words. Uh, we, do, we do love you for your courage, Lord, and your, who is like you, Lord Jesus, to be full of grace and truth. You tell us the truth, and sometimes it breaks our heart, but you're full of grace, and that breaks our heart even more. Uh, you died for us, we the ones who have turned away from you. We thank you for your kindness, your mercy. Lord, draw our hearts, whatever our position is today. Lord, if we've been mistreated by others, help us find our refuge, our comfort, our strength, our healing in you, knowing uh, vengeance is yours. Lord, whatever relationship we are in today, help us be vigilant, Lord, to honor your design, whatever that may mean for our moment Lord, thank you for your, your kindness, your love for us. We want to know you. We want to follow you. And we thank you that one day you will return. We will enjoy your presence forever. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.